the story goes something like this. In the 1870s, a group of Methodists living in the Atlantic coastal community of Swan Quarter, North Carolina, decided it was time to build a church building. God apparently was blessing the growing group of believers, and they needed a centrally located church house at which to meet. They had hoped to purchase the highest ground in the seaside little village. The most suitable and desirable location available was owned by Samuel R. Sadler. The leadership of the Little Methodist Church approached Mr. Sadler and offered to buy the land. Mr. Sadler made it clear that he had no interest in selling the land. He indicated that he had his own plans for the property and would not, under any circumstance, sell to the church whatever price they offered. The leadership was taken aback by the refusal and were understandably disappointed at not having the choice piece of property for their worship sanctuary. But the church moved on to find another piece of property several blocks away. Although it was not their first choice, they were no doubt grateful to God for the property and the chance to put their plans for God's kingdom into action. After a lot of work and sweat through the summer months of 1876, the new building was complete by mid-September. A date of Sunday, September 17th, was set as the day of dedication for the new building. But towards the end of the week, the skies grew more and more dark. A hurricane was approaching the coast of North Carolina. The members of the little church watched in horror as their greatest fears came to pass. The violent storm caused the waters of the Pamlico Sound to rise, flooding the Swan Quarter community. Much of the little village was under five feet of flood water. And as they feared, the pressing flood waters and the relentless winds finally overtook the brand new church building, lifting the entire structure from its brick pilings. The church members watched helplessly as the building that they had worked so hard to construct simply flowed away. It was then that the most curious events took place, events so bizarre and nearly unbelievable that people still talk about what took place even today, nearly a century and a half later. The rushing floodwaters carried the building down the middle of the county seat town where it bumped into the general store owned by George Creedle on Oyster Creek Road. The building then took a sharp right turn and headed down the street about two blocks until it reached the corner of Church Street. As the waters rushed swiftly around and under the building, it moved slightly off its straight-line course, took a bent to the left, crossing the Carowind Canal. It was then that the water subsided just enough on the slightly elevated terrain to rest the floating chapel exactly in the center of old man Sam Sadler's property, the very property they attempted to purchase months earlier. It's not necessarily a miracle. Wood simply floats. Floodwaters have carried away wooden structures as long as men have been building them. Storms have always battered the Carolina coastline. For centuries, the Pamlico Sound has surged floodwaters into the sleepy little town. The physical laws of nature were not defied in any way. And yet the human mind has difficulty dismissing the seemingly inexplicable nature of the church coming to rest in such a significant location. 
It is almost like an invisible hand guided the structure to its destined location. This invisible hand of control is what some theologians call the providence of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, a tool for teaching theological truths to children, expressed God's providence as, quote, His most holy, wise, and powerful preserving and governing of all His creatures in all their actions, end quote. Meaning that God has control of everything, every drop of water, every swirling eddy, and every boisterous wind that lifted the little Methodist church in Swan Quarter, North Carolina, was under the direction and the control of the hand of God. This providential control has been exerted all along the corridor of time, bringing about God's perfect design of events. God is able to control the seas and the storms and the sparrows, the rain, the rivers, and the routes. He's even able to guide the steps of a condemned servant running for his life in the paws of a wilderness dog to intersect into an encounter of astounding providential supply. I'm Ronnie Brown, and this is Forgotten. John Craig was born in the year of 1512 in a small northeastern village near Aberdeen, Scotland. While still an infant, his father died at the Battle of Flodden. It was the largest battle ever fought between the two kingdoms of England and Scotland. Beyond these few scattered facts, there's not much known of the fatherless childhood of Craig. Some speculate that because the boy was from a family of some renown, he and his mother likely lived with relatives. The boy does not appear in recorded history until he attends the University of St. Andrews at approximately the age of 13 or 14 years old. From there, after graduating with a master's in the arts in 1530, he traveled to northern England where he secured a position for a few years as a private tutor to the children of Lord Descartes, the English warden of the north charged with keeping the border between England and Scotland secure. But after tensions rose between the two countries in 1534, Craig was forced to return to his native land. Arriving back at St. Andrews, he would make a decision that would change the course of his life. He took upon himself the vows of the cloister, becoming a Dominican monk of the Catholic Church. It's not completely clear why he reached this decision. Some speculate that in some ways the church may have filled the void left by the death of his father during his childhood. Also, the character of most reformers of the time is marked by a deep, earnest desire to live a holy life before God. The reclusive life of the monastery seemed to promise a life free from the temptations and the attractions of the world. This earnestness lived out in a pursuit of truth in his new life commitment put him under the eye of scrutiny and eventually landed him in prison for several months under the suspicion of heresy. He was able to clear himself of the charge, 
but the alarming experience caused him to leave England yet again in 1536. Once back, Craig rejoined his former patron, Lord Descartes, in hopes that, through his influence, he might be able to obtain for him a teaching position at the University of Cambridge. But over the past few years, Lord Descartes had fallen out of favor with the royal court and was unable to secure the position for him. With this disappointment, young Craig, probably with the encouragement of Lord Descartes, set his sights on the mainland of Europe. This was a time of great tension between England and the Catholic Church. In 1533, steps were taken by the Pope Clement to excommunicate King Henry VIII because of his divorce from his wife, Queen Catherine of Aragon. The king's actions in ignoring the threats of the Pope caused a break within the Catholic Church, which led to the creation of the Church of England. Lord Descartes was a staunch and committed Catholic who would not have this promising young monk be caught in the crossfire. When he sent John Craig away, he more than likely sent him with letters of introduction to the English Cardinal Reginald Pole. Cardinal Pole, like John Craig, was a young and forward-thinking Catholic who expressed freely daring opinions and yet was able to avoid the trouble on the mainland that Craig had encountered back in Scotland. The Cardinal took the bright scholar and appointed him as an instructor at the Dominican Monastery in Bologna. In this position, he distinguished himself to be a man of high moral character and of astute learning ability. It wasn't long until he was being utilized for important ecclesiastical missions to all parts of the continent. Such a promising servant was not without promotion. After several years, he was named rector of the Dominican College at Bologna, a center of flourishing Catholic learning during this period. This new responsibility afforded him additional opportunities for personal study. Somewhere around the late 1500s, as Craig was studying in the Library of the Inquisition at Bologna, he stumbled across an early edition of John Calvin's seminal work of Protestant theology, the Institutes of the Christian Religion. Its teaching upended the centuries of church tradition, finding revelation from God in the Bible alone, divine salvation from Christ alone, through faith alone, by grace alone. The volume of Calvin's writings gripped the heart of John Craig, who indeed concluded that this fresh view of the work of St. Augustine was the religion and the theology of the early church. It was somewhere in this time that the faith which he, like Martin Luther, had always grasped for and knew was there, was finally laid hold of. John Craig was transformed by the gospel, a transformation that would not be contained. He began to share his newfound convictions openly to friends and colleagues. One elder colleague that he spoke to had surprisingly come to the same conclusions of embracing Reformation teachings as he. But the much older monk cautioned Craig to suppress his zeal and to tread carefully, for these were dangerous times. He advised him to make a quiet exit from the monastic order and escape to a more tolerant land. Craig followed the advice of his friend partially. He did leave the cloister, but he did not leave the country of Bologna. He was able to find a place of asylum in the employment of a neighboring nobleman 
who had also embraced Reformation principles. The ex-monk once again became a tutor to the children of a wealthy benefactor. John Craig was able to spend some time here fleshing out his newfound faith. He, along with his host and his children, spent time studying the scriptures and searching the truths that more and more opened their eyes to the errors that had so long enslaved them. He did all that he could not only to teach the Christian life to his pupils, but to live it before them. Once, while on a walk through a wooded area near the castle, where he and the children would often resort to talk and to pray, they came across a badly wounded soldier. The exact cause of the injuries has been obscured through history. Whether it was the result of an attack of thieves or the soldier had been wounded in a skirmish, his condition was one of helplessness. Craig sprang into action, attending to the man's ailments, and over a few days nursing him back to health in a manner that was a shadowy reflection of Jesus' parable of the Good Samaritan. This sweet time of refuge, however, was short-lived. In pockets all over the Western world, Reformation fires were burning. Pope Paul IV, described as one of the haughtiest and most intolerant popes that ever claimed to be the successor of St. Peter, incited a tireless inquisition to root out the slightest hint of heresy in the land. It was not long till their careful search led them to the nobleman of Bologna that harbored this rogue Reformation monk. Both of them were arrested by the inquisitors on a charge of heresy and taken to the authorities in Rome where they were imprisoned in horrid conditions for nine months, after which time Craig stood trial for heresy where he made a bold and unswerving confession of his faith in the face of certain death. As expected, he, along with several others, were condemned to be burned at the stake. This date of execution was set for August the 19th, 1559. There is little doubt that John Craig must have reflected on the advice that his older colleague had given him several years ago and regretted his refusal to leave the country. Had he fled for safer surroundings, he would no doubt have had a longer life to live in service for his God. But ultimately, his life did not lay in the hands of fierce executioners or within the whim of ambitious inquisitors or even in the hands of a ruthless and powerful pope. His life lay in the hands of his God. restorer and the sustainer of the Inquisition that condemned untold numbers to death was plagued with scandal and was despised by the Italian people for the war he incited with France that ended up in a miserable defeat. So when the news of his death on August the 18th, 1559 began to circulate throughout Rome, it was not cause for sadness, but for celebration. Italians took to the streets in riotous elation. A statue of the Pope's likeness that was erected just months before his death was toppled, and after a mock trial, the head was severed 
and all of it was thrown to the Tiber River. The people ransacked the palace and then set it on fire. The crowd then broke into the offices of the Inquisition, murdering one of the Inquisitors, and also invaded all three jails and freed more than 400 prisoners. Among them was John Craig, freed only hours before his execution. John Craig frantically ran for his life through the mayhem of the streets of Rome. But after a few frantic hours, he was forced to find a place to hide, stopping in an inn on the outskirts of town. Unbeknownst to Craig, order had been quickly restored in Rome, and a command was given by the Inquisitors to soldiers for a quick recapture of all the escaped prisoners. So it was not but a few hours later that a group of soldiers entered the very inn where Craig was hiding. Although doing all that he could not to be recognized, the leader of the band of soldiers noticed him, and as he fixed his gaze on the fugitive, Craig began to feel that he'd been discovered. Then the most bizarre event took place. The officer came to the side of Craig and asked if he had ever been to Bologna. When he answered with a hesitant yes, the soldier replied with another strange question. Quote, Do you ever recall walking with some younger men out in the countryside, discovering a wounded soldier lying in a field in desperate need of help? End quote. In confusion, Craig said that he had forgotten such a circumstance. The officer said, quote, But I have not forgotten it. I am the man you relieved and am glad to have it now in my power to return the kindness which you showed to a distressed stranger, end quote. With this, he reached into his script and gave him every bit of money that he possessed and proceeded to tell him the most discreet and quickest route out of Rome. And with the help of this kind soldier, Craig was able to escape Rome undetected. The place of his first resort was Bologna, He was certain that he could find aid and safe haven among the friends and family of his former benefactor, as well as other colleagues that sympathized with his plight. Following the soldier's advice, the fugitive reformer avoided all public roads, making his travel arduous and slow, and yet undetected. He spent his days in out-of-the-way, secluded places, resuming his journey in the night. When he arrived at Bologna several weeks later, he stealthily searched out for those that might help him, but found that the family and friends of his former master had either fled the country or were so fearful of what happened to the nobleman that they quickly turned away from the marked man. When he sought out former colleagues, they were so repulsed and alarmed by the presence of such a notorious heretic that they made public denunciations concerning Craig and went so far as to alarm the Inquisition of his presence. John was forced to hastily retreat from Bologna in terror. Now he found himself in an even worse state than when he fled from Rome. The money that the soldier had given him was enough to see him to Bologna. But the unexpected turn of events there left the reformer running for his life with no clue as to where to go and without a penny to his name. When he felt it safe to rest, the discouraged and hungry man lay down among some bushes in a deserted place near a small stream of water. He cautiously drank the refreshing water 
as he reflected on his terrible plight, somewhat despairing of life and hoping to die. Then he heard it, the snapping of a twig, the rustling of leaves. He froze as his eyes surveyed the dense forest around him. There was no doubt that whatever was making the sound was coming towards him. With his heart beating out of his chest, he breathed a silent prayer to God for deliverance. Was it a captor that had finally tracked him down? Was it a beast looking to feed upon the weary traveler? Finally it appeared from behind the trees. It was a dog, a black dog. It had no fierce growl, no intimidating bark, but a welcoming wagging tail. The friendly animal continued to come toward Craig without hesitation. As the dog approached, Craig noticed that it was carrying something in its teeth that looked to be like a small leather bag. As the dog continued to come closer, John began to look around for someone nearby, suspecting that the dog was part of some trap to lure him into arrest. But no one could be seen. He even tried to shoo the dog away to no avail. The whimpering dog walked right up to Craig and laid the bag at his feet and began to fawn upon the weary traveler begging for his affection. Patting the dog on the head, he reached down and picked up the small purse and found it full of gold coins. No doubt tears welled up in the eyes of this needy servant of God as he thought of how his faith had wavered so after God had proved faithful in his escape from prison and the assistance of an unlikely soldier. If God brought deliverance to his prophets of old through the talons of ravens, then why could he not use the teeth of a dog? There are some that have scoffed at this account as with many providences of God through the ages, calling it anywhere from a gross exaggeration to an outright lie. John Rowe, whose father had served the Catholic Church in Italy around the same time period as Craig, became one of John Craig's biographers. In his book, The History of the Church of Scotland, Rowe details that the certainty of these events are without question, as it was often repeated in his own hearing by John Craig's wife, who being much younger than he, lived until 1630 and was well known as a faithful and honest woman. Many people of good standing reported hearing the story from Craig himself in his sermons and in conversation. The enemies of the Reformation unwittingly corroborated the story by trying to disparage Craig, accusing him of black arts saying that the black color of the dog surely revealed that his help came from Satan. The direct reference to this event showed that the account was well known by friend and foe alike and not held in question. Rowe goes on to say that later, when he arrived in Scotland, he brought with him the dog, the purse, and some of the gold, lending to the validity of this astounding event. With renewed vigor and hope in God, John Craig made his way to a nearby village 
where he purchased sustenance and regained a measure of strength. By the end of 1559, he had safely crossed over into the country of Austria and came into the city of Vienna. It was there, filled with faith and courage, that the reformer, dressed in the garb of a Dominican monk, preached publicly the gospel of the grace of God in Jesus Christ, the doctrine that he had steadfastly held to in the face of certain death. Although the imperial throne was occupied by King Ferdinand, his son Archduke Maximilian was the heir apparent and soon-to-be emperor. Maximilian's government would be later known by Protestants and Catholics alike as one of the most tolerant of differing religious beliefs. Maximilian himself leaned very much toward Protestant thinking, so when the fame of this fiery and eloquent new preacher that all were flocking to hear reached the ear of Maximilian, he was entreated to preach before the Archduke. Craig soon became a favorite in the court. But his fame not only reached the ear of the Archduke, it also reached Rome. Learning of his location, the Inquisitors complained to the new Pope and found no difficulty in obtaining from him a letter addressed to the Emperor of Austria demanding the return of this condemned heretic back to Rome. Not wanting to risk a war over this fugitive, the Archduke drew up letters of safe conduct for Craig to cross Germany and make his way back to England, arriving somewhere in the summer of 1516. Upon arriving, he must have heard of the Reformation movement going on in his native Scotland and immediately made his way homeward. John Craig would spend the remaining 40 years of his life playing a significant role in the Reformation of Scotland. In 1561, he was appointed to be the colleague of the leading reformer of Scotland, John Knox, in the parish church in Edinburgh, an office which he held for nine years. In 1572, he was sent by the General Assembly of Churches as a missionary to preach at Montrose, quote, for the illuminating of the North, end quote. After he remained there for two years, he was sent to illuminate the dark places of Mar and Buchan and Aberdeen and also teach the youth in the college there. In 1579, King James VI personally appointed Craig, whom he called, quote, one of the best gifted in the kingdom, end quote, as his royal chaplain. Upon returning to Edinburgh, he took a lead role in the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, where he compiled part of the Second Book of Discipline, somewhat of a guidebook for Scottish churches. He also authored, in 1581, what is known as the National Covenant, based on the Scots Confession of Faith in 1560. This document was a strong and blatant denunciation of the Pope and the doctrines of the Roman Catholic Church. Adopted by the General Assembly of the Church of Scotland, it was signed by King James VI and his entire household. This National Covenant, penned by John Craig, would serve as the foundation and basis of the National Covenant 1638, the signers of which would forever be known as the Scottish Covenanters. In a real and direct way, John Craig was the grandfather of the courageous Presbyterians who risked their life to worship God by the dictates of their conscience, worshiping in secluded open-air meetings called conventicles.
After a remarkable life of service to God, John Craig died in early December of 1600 at the ripe old age of 88. of John Craig's life would have ever been realized had it not been for the mysterious providential work of God in his life. In each instance of hindsight, it is as though we can see the hand of God at work in every narrow escape, in every unexpected encounter, and in every gracious provision. Yet time and space do not diminish the kind and gracious provision of God. He's still at work, even in our lives. In every eddy of time, in every turn of circumstance, in every breeze that fills the sails of our lives, God is in control. David, the hymn writer of Israel, sang this truth when he wrote, The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Hundreds of years later, another hymn writer, Isaac Watts, would say the same truth this way, Jesus shall reign where'er the sun does its successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Forgotten is written and produced by me, Ronnie Brown. You can find out more about this show at ForgottenPodcast.com. I'm also on Facebook at facebook.com slash forgotten podcast. And as always, thanks for listening.